0: This is Anxiously with Amy and Lisa. Now here are your hosts, Amy and Lisa.
1: Hi Amy, how are you? Hi Lisa, I'm okay, I'm a little anxious. <laughs>
0: Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Anxiously with me, Lisa.
1: And me, Amy.
0: So there is so much going on in this stressful new time, and there are so many things coming up to make us feel anxious, from germs to aging to raw chicken to family. And we are going to talk about it all.
1: We've been friends forever, and we even work together in the publishing industry in New York City. And until recently, we shared an office. And there was a lot of back and forth and talk in that office, ranging from, can you look at this email? Does it look weird? To, can you look at this mole? Does it look weird?
0: So now we're working from home, and we're finding that there's more than ever to be anxious about. We've always found that talking through our fears and our feelings and our anxieties about lettuce recalls has helped us put things into perspective. Plus, knowing someone always has your back and won't ever make fun of you for your particular neuroses is always an incredibly validating thing. We're so lucky to have each other.
1: So we're not therapists, and this show is not designed to be a replacement for actual therapy. We love therapy, but we're just two friends talking through the things that make us nervous, scared, or just a little squeamish.
0: We've been on this journey together for a really long time. Now we hope you'll join us and maybe even get something out of it along the way, too.
1: And, you know, Lisa, really, I hate to be, like, an anxious hipster, but I've been anxious since before it was cool.
0: Anxious is my sort of permanent state these days. So how are you doing?
1: I'm, you know, it's been... It's been
0: a few weeks.
1: Yeah, it's been a year. It's been many years. <laughs> <This is> true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's been like a decade rolled into one year. Every time I think, okay, things have to get a little bit stable. Like we have to normalize. It just gets completely weirder.
1: Yep. Right. Yes. I mean, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, which, for a hypochondriac like me, is pretty much worst nightmare scenario come true. (laughs) And there's new mutations every day. Yeah, I imagine you're reading rabidly about all those... Like, too much. It's not good. (laughs) How are you coping with that?
0: I feel like there are so many news stories to take me down... Rabbit holes till the wee hours of the night. It's hard to pinpoint just one theme to really fixate on. And now I've been trying to figure out how my parents can get vaccinated for COVID. They live in the state of Delaware, which is very, very small. And you would think that a small state would have things under control. Like Israel's a small country and they seem to be doing a really good job. Well, Delaware. Not so much. And it's definitely stressing me out. And my parents seem to be taking it in stride, but I know it's unnerving for them, too. So that's... The newest stress.
1: Oh, I'm sure. I do feel like all the like ch- the obedient children were all rushing. We're all. I-, I texted my parents immediately. You know, oh, good news! 65 and up, you can get vaccinated. Right. But it does seem like whenever there's like a bit of good news or a ray of hope, there's some something new sprouts up like a horrible game of whack-a-mole where like it just <laughs> totally keeps getting worse. Like, I mean, we haven't even touched on like the sort of global political upheaval not just in America, but everywhere, that seems to be without any end in sight. To be
0: capped off, maybe, although who knows what's next, by a guy wearing a Camp Auschwitz t-shirt at the (laughs) (laughs) Capitol.
1: Right, like that's what I want to see in the year 2021. Things are really rough right now. Really rough. How do we cope? Like, I know I have a tendency to crawl under the covers with literally bringing a carton of ice cream into the bed with me <laughs> and, and just binging Netflix and shutting out the world.
0: I feel like I swing between wanting to hide and burrow under the covers or feeling like, oh my gosh, we have to be super political and, and it's everywhere. It's like if you go on your friend's Facebook feeds, it's all there is. And yeah, I don't know, it just feels like this really... Toxic cycle of swinging from feeling like we have to be super political and super on all the time to just
1: wanting to hide. Yeah, and there in like, is there a right way to be? And yes, should I be frantically writing my congress people all the time and going to marches and protests?
0: I feel like I keep going down memory lane, thinking back to how when we were kids, it just seemed that the world was headed in such a good direction and there was peace. The Cold War ended and it just, everything seemed a little bit more innocent somehow.
1: I mean, obviously there were social ills, untold social ills in the world still at that time, but it is true that being in America, things, yeah, things just seem more stable somehow and There wasn't the internet. You really see that the internet is like a scourge of our our time. It really is. Are we just feeling this way? Like, are we just looking at the lens of nostalgia? Because we were kids then and life seemed simpler and we weren't as attuned to the various problems going on. Or do you think it objectively has gotten worse?
0: I don't know. I I guess I imagine on some level, every generation goes through this as you reach adulthood or late adulthood and some shift happens. Maybe everybody says, oh, back in my day. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. Objectively, things do kind of seem a lot worse. I mean, we do have a pandemic
1: and, you know, a mob just rushed the Capitol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But I guess the question is, what are the sort of healthy-ish coping mechanisms? We're not looking for the cure, but we're looking like how to kind of live our lives, even with the anxiety in the background.
0: We are not the first generation to live through big seismic events, even if the current events feel really remarkable and extraordinary. We would like to look to somebody who has been through it before, and so we would like to welcome fellow warrior and warrior
1: author Anne Royfe. And her adorable dog who wanted in on the interview, too.
0: Anne Royfe is one of our greatest living writers. Her second novel, Up the Sandbox, was made into a movie starring Barbara Streisand, one of the first Hollywood films to explore the changing role of women in society following the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Her essays have been published in every magazine that counts, including Tablet, and she remains an astute, unorthodox, and thrilling thinker on everything from feminism to Judaism. Thank you so much for joining us, Anne.
2: Well, thank you, and thank you for the lovely introduction. I hope that there's Ah. still some things that I have yet to discuss that I haven't discussed yet, but (laughs) you never know.
1: (laughs) So you've written and commented on and witnessed so many instances in American public life that have been tumultuous and difficult. Is there something particularly hard about this moment, though, would you say? Has it been worse before, or are things as bad as they seem?
2: Well, I was born before World War II. I was a little girl when they were marching in Yorkville, the Nazis. There was the Red Scare. There was McCarthyism, which I thought was the end of the world. And I thought it was the end of America and everything we cared about, and that the whole country was falling down and would fall apart. and I was related to Roy Collins, so I really knew what a bad character he was. And I was in college and I was very, very frightened then. I was also frightened because writers and artists were being blackballed. Any decent movie script writer had to flee to England. I mean, it was, they were very, very dangerous anti-American times, which we somehow glided out of. And, you know, then suddenly there are other kinds of problems. There's inequality, there's racism, there's there's always anti-Semitism, but it wasn't the kind that was going to frighten you. I mean, nobody was coming after us in our homes and banging on the doors, though... It could have happened. It just, we're lucky it didn't. And I don't remember a straight 10-year period without there being reason to worry about the survival of the state. Now obviously the state perfectly well survived and not because I was worried it just survived so that has given me a certain kind of calm I keep saying to my children who are roughly your age this is going to change something else awful is going to happen just wait (laughs) (laughs) I I relate to that very much (laughs) this isn't the end this is just part of the horrible, long, dangerous journey. This may be politically the most dangerous moment that I can remember, aside from McCarthyism. Because I really did think at that time that we were going to lose freedom of speech. That's really what it looked like. And people were so cowardly. I mean, you can't imagine, you know, people you thought were brave and decent would run if they saw a piece of paper in your hand asking for a signature. I never saw you. I don't know who you are. I never. I don't sign anything. I don't talk to anybody. People were really scared, and this is the way history goes. It gets pretty awful, then it kind of the awfulness subsides a little, and then it rises again. And what do we do? We hold on. We keep going. We have families. We keep hoping. We keep loving those we love and hating those we hate, <laughs> and it goes on. You know, whatever we do. That I have learned finally so that I don't get quite as desperate with each twitch of the historical (laughs) needle.
1: That is good to hear.
0: Yeah, it is. It's a comforting perspective. There was an essay, I think in Tablet, where you wrote, my late psychoanalyst husband told me not to confuse the fate of the world with my own place in it. He was right, but I would still like to hear him tell me that again. I think that fits in so well with what you were just saying about having a sort of perspective. Holding on to
2: that perspective is not as easy as it sounds.
0: That's what I was going to ask you. <laughs>
2: but, but, you know, if we were in a car and the car skidded on the ice, and I would say, oh, my God, I think we're going to die. He would say, you're not the first person to skid on the ice don't worry but that doesn't make the skidding less terrifying right well, it doesn't exactly except i'm not driving he's driving <laughs> and he was a slightly dangerous driver <laughs> well he really thought he was a world war one flying ace is what he really <laughs> thought <laughs> in his head it it simply means there is wow. a perspective that's not just what's happening to you
1: at a given moment. I like that analogy that's skidding on the ice because I feel like we're all skidding on the ice right now. But it is helpful to think we are not the first nor the last.
2: It's altogether helpful to put yourself in perspective. Especially the most important place to remember that is about dying or sickness. In our own heads, our biology, our relationships, our thoughts are so important but in the real world what is it it's a, you know it's like a dandelion you go and go somebody's going to go and it's all going to go and the only way To accept that is to accept it. You know, that's all. It just didn't, you can have a religious response to, you know, somewhere I'm going to end up playing the harp, which would be a disaster for the rest of the dead people because I'm so (laughs) non-musical. But if, I mean, in reality, what is just going to happen is that biology will do what biology does. That's the way it is. And it is much better just to look at this realistically and accept it and not not tell oneself fairy tales. It's funny because Lisa and
1: I, that was another question we had which was coping mechanisms and we were talking about
2: the various things we do. The thing is you change your point of view as you get older all the time. I mean things that are terrifying when you're 19 are not so terrifying. Things that you feel you just can't live without. You suddenly can live very well without. I don't even know why I'm I'm so much calmer than I used to be. Partially, I think, because I don't really feel the need anymore to write down everything. I mean, I used to feel that everything had to be written about. I shouldn't leave anything out. Of course, first of all, you can't write about everything without boring the world to death. Also, it's not necessary. From where you are, you say something. And that something is heard by someone.
1: And that's good enough. The flip side of the hiding and the avoidance is kind of like what you were saying with the writing to just doing instead, like overdoing maybe, you know, going to protests, getting really politically engaged, which I think obviously is great, but then that can become all-consuming in a way too, and you can become kind of frenzied almost.
0: So since Amy brought up politics, You'd mentioned that Roy Cohn was a relation. He was McCarthy's chief counsel, I think, and a mentor to Donald Trump. And when you were in college, you wrote him a letter chastising him for making the political arena feel so toxic. I'm wondering if he ever wrote you back.
2: No, he didn't write me back, but my father, who was doing small little jobs for him, because he Roy had a practice as well, a law practice, um, in which he was handling divorces of very, he was doing work for Roy, who was handling divorces of very rich women. So, um, you know, all, and I was hearing things like, I in the living room, I walked across the floor one day and I heard my father say, well, judge, is 15000 agreed on? and I you know, I'm listening and there's some more talk, all right, 20. That's it then. And I said to my father, Were you bribing a judge? And he said, I was just creating an equal trial. Wow. And oh I thought about that for a while. And then I thought, no, that that won't do. But um this is, you know, it was a very corrupt world. Um and um And Roy was a monster.
0: Do you see some of that echoing in today's political
2: world? Well, of course, because nothing, you know, it's human nature. Not, not, you know, it's not some special ghoul. I mean, Trump was taught by Roy Cohn. he He has that same kind of, you know, indifference to the human beings that are standing in his way, if they are standing in his way, and the sense that you can buy and sell anything that, you know, there isn't a morality above what you get with your dollars. And that is very corrosive and terrible and, you know, and dangerous. He did his damage and Roy did terrible damage. There were people, I mean, enormous numbers of people who had to flee this country, um, decent writers who had no intention of overthrowing the government, but had, you know, had communist sympathies of the sort that we all have for, you know, whatever it might be at the moment. I mean, if you were sympathetic to black lives matter, it doesn't mean that you want to burn down main street. And um, this is, you know, it was, a, it was just a very bad time, but it's, Roy Cohn is safely in the mausoleum that I wrote about, and you
1: don't have to worry about him. Right, I I always think about Angels in America yeah. when I think huh. of Roy Cohn, and oh yes, of course. Yeah, the and the great death scene with um, Ethel Rosenberg, anyway. It's, uh,
2: that was a brilliant play. I mean, just
1: brilliant. And thank God for art and. And good art, and I feel like that sees us through, And like, like your books and your writing. Um, in an essay you wrote in Tablet a few years ago, you talk about your feminist journey and your Jewish identity and how they're so intertwined, which I found fascinating as a Jew and a feminist. And you wrestle with questions of God and the Holocaust and how terrible things can happen and kind of living with those uncertainties. I know this very keenly. I'm a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, so can you talk a little bit about living with those uncertainties, which often lead to anxiety, and how how you kind of reached a place of understanding?
2: The entire Jewish community has anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. And the anxiety, the political anxiety, is that this can happen again. Ordinarily, you put that as far away from you as you can, because realistically we are not threatened at this particular moment. I mean, nobody is rounding us up, but it hangs there in an awful kind of way. And I think we have to be vigilant. I'm heartbroken about Israel because it will not do for us what I had hoped it would do for us. Would you like me to tell you how my feminism clashed with my Zionism? It's a very embarrassing story, but <laughs> I graduated from high school at 17, and uh, it was 1953, and Israel was around, and I was very excited about it, and I really wanted to go to Israel. My mother wouldn't hear of it, you know, possibly, and, so forth, and I was going to college in the fall, and there was the summer, so I had a brilliant idea. My idea was to go to the Metropolitan Museum and walk the halls every day for a few hours. And some Israeli soldier who was home visiting his mother was going to see me and fall in love with me and take me back to Israel. Did it occur to me to buy a ticket? No. Did it occur to me to save a little money so that I could buy a ticket or to work so I could buy a ticket? No. It occurred to me that if I sit on this bench, somebody will come. Some man, some male will come and rescue me, which was such a 50s way of coping. It's embarrassing because it's so absurd. If any of my children said something like that, I would kill them. But <laughs> it was so real and a real possibility, which of course nobody ever came.
0: I think we've all had these fantasies that are kind of silly and embarrassing in retrospect. Um, but more recently, in August of this past year, in 2020, you wrote, in this my 84th year of life, I often feel peaceful. And so I guess, do you think that peace and wisdom and, and the perspective that we've been talking about, the ability to look at the events that are unfolding in real time and, and really like to recognize that there is a grander scale and this is a small piece of a much larger puzzle, comes with age? Or is it something that people in their 40s, for instance, (laughs) could learn to really accept and embrace?
2: Oh, I, I definitely think it's something that people in their 20s can feel or know or have a kind of airplane view of their own lives. I've known people like that. Very young. I mean, I don't really just think it's age. Partially, it's easier with age because you've been through enough so you can see that, you know, this looks like the most terrible moment of anybody's life, anytime, anywhere, and then it fades into the next moment, which is much better, and then the moment after that, which isn't quite so good anymore. But, you know, you get used to the up and down and the better and worse. And there's a lot of it for everybody. I mean, I don't think anybody walks through with. No disaster ever. Do you
0: think having children brings it into sharper relief, the ability to put things into perspective or the terror on the other end?
2: Well, I think the terror is worse when you have children because it's not just for yourself, it's for your child. And that's, I would say, a thousand times tougher to deal with. If one had a child who had cancer, sometimes I imagine it and I think, you know, I wouldn't. Could I have made it through? And that's even with other children in this fantasy who are not having cancer. So, you know, you have you would have to keep yourself together for the others. But at the same time, what would you, how would it be? How could you? And if somebody, you know, if somebody attacks this incredible kind of love we have for children, for your own children, hopefully for more than your own children, but it starts with your own children or it ends with your own children, it's almost unthinkable. And I think it's dangerous. In other words, living is dangerous. The alternative is not to live. And, you know, that—that that is not a choice. Just not a choice. I mean, you, you have to take the risk of all kinds of things or you don't live at all.
1: There's something soothing about that in, in a way living is da- it is dangerous like it, there's something freeing about it saying yeah that that's just
2: that's true i mean because you do, you can't come to every crossroads and figure out the safest way to negotiate across the street because there probably isn't a safest way you just have to move on to the next street and sometimes you'll be hurt that's You know, sometimes a car comes and smashes you. I think that's my
1: struggle is I I am always trying to find the safest crosswalk. And
2: (laughs) you spend a lot of
1: time doing that and a lot of energy. And yeah. Well, if you find one, you know,
2: let me
1: know. (laughs) (laughs) I will. (laughs) You seem, in general, very at peace. And we thank you for that, for giving us that perspective. What, if anything, makes you anxious?
2: I was scared of focus until my husband died. I wake up one morning and there's a roach and he's not here to get rid of it so I don't scream which would have been my usual habit and I don't <laughs> yell and I get up and I get a piece of paper and I squish it and I throw it out and I think okay that's what I do with bugs <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> and So you know you just learn how to make do with what you got well thank you so much Oh, you're most welcome. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you
0: very much. Uh, It was such an honor.
2: Oh, please. I'm delighted
0: to talk to both of you. Amy, she was incredible. She was so wise, and I just feel much more calm, I guess. How about you?
1: That was amazing. I feel so centered and <laughs> I just wanted yes. to keep on listening to her. I wish we were living in different times where we could go and get drinks with her and <laughs> just talk and talk. I That did make me feel better about the state of the world. It, it really did give such much needed perspective.
0: So what are you doing this week to sort of chill out and feel less anxious?
1: Well, I wish I had like a recording of Anne Royfe to listen to (laughs) before bed every night. In lieu of that, I haven't actually tried this yet, but a friend of mine recommended Headspace apparently is on Netflix now.
0: Oh, really? Yeah,
1: I will investigate that and maybe instead of using Netflix to escape, I can use it to cope with my anxious feelings and see. So for people who don't know, Headspace is like a meditation app. And I'm not sure how it's different on Netflix, but I am curious to try it. So I will report back to you and see if that...
0: Yeah, I'll be curious to hear what it's like. I'm a big fan of meditation. I did the Transcendental Meditation course a few years ago, and I used to practice it daily, pretty religiously. And then, I, I don't know, life got in the way and I stopped and I miss it. So... I hope you find some peace
1: there. Uh, how about you? What are you What are you turning to to calm down?
0: So, in the '90s, I was a big hockey fan, like oh. big. And uh-huh. when I was in college, I used to go to Philadelphia Flyers games all the time. I stopped watching hockey. You know, I just stopped having time and it just wasn't a priority. Well, my husband started watching hockey after dissing it in a very serious way. Ooh. He started watching hockey and it's been very fun
1: and relaxing. Really? You find hockey, yes. rela- you find like men hurling around on well, ice I and it. getting into fights and stuff relaxing. <laughs> okay, I get it. I mean, yeah, people watch boxing and find it relaxing. There
0: are far less fights than you would think, actually. Yeah. Hmm. When I was in college, I also went to a lot of minor league hockey games, and that's where the real fighting happens.
1: (laughs) A lot of blood in minor league hockey. (laughs) So after all that, are you feeling less anxious?
0: I really am. That was a really wonderful conversation. You?
1: Yeah. No, I also feel much calmer. I mean, I don't think the world is going to magically improve (laughs) anytime soon, but it's good to just know that we'll get through it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And as we always
1: say, Amy, I know you get it. And for everyone listening, we hope you get it too. And uh, we'll talk to you next time.
0: Anxiously is brought to you by Tablet Studios. Our producers are Josh Cross, Sarah Fredman-Ader, and Robert Scaramuccia. Our music is by the best band in the world, Low Cut, Connie. Please rate and review us on iTunes so more people can find us. It really helps. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at AnxiouslyPod. And if you have feedback or questions about the show, email us at anxiously at tabletmag.com. For more information about the show, head to tabletmag.com slash anxiously. And check out all of Tablet's podcasts at tabletmag.com slash podcasts. See you later. Was it okay? Yeah, what did you guys think?